Bible reading for today is 1 Samuel chapter 20, verses 1 to 17. Then David fled from Naoth at Ramah and went to Jonathan and asked, What have I done? What is my crime? How have I wronged your father that he's trying to kill me? Never, Jonathan replied. You're not going to die. Look, my father doesn't do anything, great or small, without letting me know. Why would he hide this from me? It isn't so. But David took an oath and said, Your father knows very well that I found favour in your eyes. And he has said to himself, Jonathan must not know this or he will be grieved. Yet as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, there is only a step between me and death. Jonathan said to David, Whatever you want me to do, I'll do for you. So David said, Look, tomorrow is the new moon feast, and I'm supposed to dine with the king. But let me go and hide in the field until the evening of the day after tomorrow. If your father misses me at all, tell him, David earnestly asked my permission to hurry to Bethlehem, his hometown, because an annual sacrifice is being made there for his whole clan. If he says, very well, then your servant is safe. But if he loses his temper, you can be sure he's determined to harm me. As for you, show kindness to your servant, for you have brought him into a covenant with you before the Lord. If I am guilty, then kill me yourself. Why hand me over to your father? Never, Jonathan said. If I had the least inkling that my father was determined to harm you, Wouldn't I tell you? David asked, Who will tell me if your father answers you harshly? Come, Jonathan said, let's go out into the field. So they went there together. Then Jonathan said to David, I swear by the Lord, the God of Israel, that I will surely sound out my father by this time, the day after tomorrow. If he is favorably disposed toward you, Will I not send you word and let you know? But if my father intends to harm you, may the Lord deal with Jonathan, be it ever so severely, if I do not let you know and send you away in peace. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. But show me unfailing kindness, like the Lord's kindness, as long as I live, so that I may not be killed. And do not ever cut off your kindness from my family." not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord call David's enemies to account. And Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him, because he loved him as he loved himself. Thanks, Tamba. Morning, everyone. Good to see you this morning. We thought we'd uh, not read the whole chapter this morning. Uh, These narratives can get quite long. Safe to say, uh, David and Jonathan follow out their plan. Uh, When Saul realises David's not at the table, he cracks it. And uh, he cracks it at his son Jonathan even, uh, even tries to kill him. And so they both know that, yes, Saul is trying to kill David. And so they make a plan to get David out of there. And they reaffirm once again their friendship. Perhaps we can just pray uh, once more as, as God 
applies this word to us and, and teaches us from uh, this passage. Father God, we thank you for your word. Thank you that you've revealed yourself uh, to us in your word. Uh, that Lord, uh, not just through stories of people, uh, not just through uh, commands and moral lessons, but that you actually show yourself, your character, your love, uh, and you show and you point us to Jesus. And we just pray, Lord, that this morning we might see Jesus, we might discover Him, we might learn more of Him uh, as we seek to uh, live as your people in this world together. And we pray in His name. Amen. Well, there is uh, nothing on this earth more to be prized than true friendship. So says Thomas Aquinas, uh, the medieval theologian. Oh, here's a quote from Herodotus, the ancient Greek historian. Of all possessions, a friend is most precious. Or from the same era, Euripides, the Greek poet, one loyal friend is worth 10,000 relatives. Uh, I thought that was good for a church that often celebrates many relatives and uh, extended family. One loyal friend is, is much better. But we probably all agree that uh, friendship is incredibly important, essential even in life. You know, there are countless studies out there that will tell you how friendships significantly improve your health. And this is the way that God has designed it. Way back at the beginning, he said it was not good for the man to be alone. It wasn't good for him to be by himself. And so he made the woman. And the most important part of their relationship, before being sexual partners, before being co-parents, was to be friends, to be companions, to be helpers, to be life partners. And friendship even in that way, is not exclusive to marriage. Something we celebrate widely as people. Jonathan Edwards says that uh, God made us to need other people. And that He must be the most, or the, sorry, the least envious, least possessive being because He actually wants us to need other relationships as well as our relationship with Him. We talk about similar stuff uh, when we do pre-marriage counselling, how married people should really want for their spouses to have other friends, to have good friends beyond just their spouse. Because friendships are crucial for well-being, for healthy relationship building. But what is a friend? That's really the question, isn't it? So often we're what actually defines a friend? You know, what's the difference between a friend and an acquaintance? Or a friend and a, and a colleague? Or a friend and a brother or sister in Christ? I think as people, we often lean to sort of one of two views. There's the narrow view, which is that you only use the friend label for the closest relationships. So your spouse, if you have one, uh, perhaps a best friend, if you have one of those, uh, or maybe just a, a small handful of people that you see regularly and can talk openly with. That's the narrow view. But then the broad view is that pretty much everyone you know is your friend. So your, your classmates, your co-workers, your cousins, uh, your contacts from every possible sphere, they're all your friends. Not to mention the 500 Facebook friends that you've got. And as we look today at the story of David and Jonathan, I want 
us to try and set aside our preconceived ideas of friendship, whichever way we might look at it. And perhaps seek anew what, what's really at the heart of all of this. Because in this exemplary relationship between David and Jonathan, there is, there is definitely a closeness. And, and it's a closeness that you couldn't share with too many people. You'd be spread far too thin. But there's also a foundation which reveals a, a broad potential. A broad potential for friendships, especially within the church community, especially within the church community. And as we think uh, this coming term, uh, very particularly about what Christian relationships are all about, hopefully this story proves really helpful to us. And so the first thing to highlight today is that friendship is about love plus covenant. Love plus covenant. It's not one or the other. And people have debated this at times, you know, is it about love or is it about covenant? It's actually both. It's always both. It has to be both. So between chapters 18 and 23 of 1 Samuel, it says three times that David and Jonathan made a covenant with each other. And then it refers to those covenants at least twice more in those chapters. There's a lot of references to covenant. And what are these covenants? Well, They're basically promises of commitment, promises of loyalty, promises of faithfulness. They were a pledge between two friends that they would remain friends, no matter what challenges arose, no matter what difficulties would arise. (coughs) But they were based on two things. They were based on God, which we'll come back to in a little bit, and they were based on love. And so each time it mentions their covenant making, it mentions the love that they had for each other. Often, at least for Jonathan, it was that he loved David as he loved himself. And when we read those words, it really should remind us of the original command in Leviticus chapter 19. It says in verse 18, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people. And that Uh, by the way, connects us back to last week, we talked about vengeance. But love your neighbour as yourself. I am the Lord. And we know that Jesus affirmed that command, didn't he? Love your neighbour as yourself. Care for them as you care for yourself. Help them as you help yourself. Look to their interests and needs as you look to your own, which starts to bring us back to Philippians chapter 2, uh, verse 3. We're all naturally good at, at loving ourselves. And that doesn't mean, you know, you know, the old saying people used to use, it's arrogance and all that sort of stuff. It means that we take care of ourselves, that we look after ourselves, we see to our needs, etc. But our challenge is actually to love others as we love ourselves. And this is what Jonathan and David did. They loved each other very much. And I just want to call it right here, uh, call it a pause if you want to, but I'm going to take a guess that there's many men in the room who might get a bit uncomfortable with the idea of love between two men, however it might be defined. 
you know, in decades and centuries past, for long, long ago, that would not be the case. It was, it was normal, it was acceptable. But we've now gone through a few generations where we've disconnected the idea of manliness from brotherly love, from good, solid, brotherly love. And one could easily say that true homophobia is not defined by the view that homosexuality is wrong or how you might treat gay people, but perhaps it's defined by your fear of having a close relationship with another man because of the way that it might be misunderstood or or labelled as something else. And as we've talked about, that's because in our over-sexualized society, that's instantly where we go. And even theologians in this society have debated and talked about, well, maybe David and Jonathan were gay. Maybe this was a secret gay relationship. Or or at least that they were bisexual. Why? Because they loved each other. I mean, it's, it's, it's garbage. It's complete speculation that's based on the preconceived ideas of the culture that we are in. Some have said, and they read the narrative, and they say, well, their relationship looks just like a marriage. And I want to say this morning that that is actually a really good thing. It's actually a really good thing. And perhaps it's not so much that their relationship reflects a marriage, but that marriages could learn so much from their relationship and could learn to reflect their relationship. After all, what is marriage? It is a covenant. Those vows that people make on their wedding day, they are a covenant. And that covenant is coupled with love, a love which puts the other person before yourself and seeks their needs above your own. A love which protects and respects. But this covenantal love is not restricted to marriage. Sex is, procreation is, but loving, committed friendships, not at all. It's true that many of us have to be very careful to avoid deep friendships with others of the opposite sex because it just can too easily become romantic or sexual. But even there, sometimes we have to learn that the culture is pushing that on us and that friendship is far, far greater than romance and sex. Tim Keller talks about three key ingredients in any friendship. He says that there's constancy, there's transparency and there's sympathy. So constancy is the commitment that we've just been talking about. It's, it's the covenant, it's the loyalty, it's the faithfulness. Transparency is about openness and vulnerability. It's, it's really what love produces. It's what makes an authentic relationship that we are willing to bear ourselves to someone else and be vulnerable with them. And then sympathy, I want to define that in two ways. It's about compassion caring for the other person, but it's also about common passions, which is kind of the two words that make up the word compassion. And so that can include, uh, I guess, more surface things like personal interests, and it can also include deep-seated 
heartfelt beliefs. So a love of sports can be a basis for friendship. A love of movies or books can be a basis for friendship. Working the same job, studying the same course, they can be great bases for friendship. But there's no greater basis than the love of God. That tops them all by far. We don't actually know whether David and Jonathan had any shared interests. Uh, I mean, presumably they fought together. Uh, They certainly dined at Saul's table together. They hung out a bit, obviously. But nowhere does it say that they shared a passion for archery or music or weaving or Xbox, I don't know, whatever else it might be. But what we do know is that they definitely had a shared love for God. They made their covenants before God, their most high. They sought God's presence, His kindness, and His peace for each other. And they reflected God's covenant love in their relationship. So they knew what covenant was because God had shown that originally. He made a covenant with His people Israel that He would be their God and they would be His people. And it's about God's commitment and God's loyalty and God's faithfulness to broken people. And this is what they echoed in their relationship. And they also knew what love was because God had shown it. His love is coupled with His covenant. In fact, His love is who He is. His covenant, that's His action, that's His decision, but His love is actually who He is, it's His nature. The word that's most used for God's love in the Old Testament is the word chesed, which means steadfast love or or a loving kindness or a covenantal love, which means it lasts, it's solid, it's firm. And again, this covenant and this love, they cannot be separated, they have to go hand in hand, there's commitment required. John sums it up perfectly, I think, in his first letter, in chapter 4. Verse 8, he says, God is love. God is love, it's part of His character. That's who He is, that's how we define love. And then in the next verse, verse 9, he says that God shows His love by sending Jesus. That's his covenant. That's his action, his decision to send Jesus. That's the new covenant in Christ because he loves us. And so this love plus covenant, this is the ultimate foundation for our friendships. It is far deeper than all other interests or passions. It's the life-changing, life-defining gospel of Jesus. And it can bring people together who might otherwise never have connected, who might otherwise have just been enemies. But through the gospel, they can be bound. In 1 Samuel chapter 18, it says that David and Jonathan were one in spirit. They were one in spirit. And again, it points forward to this day when believers like them could have a common sharing in the Spirit. 
and being united with Christ and how with that foundation we can be like-minded and we can have the same love and we can be one in spirit and of one mind. And so to a certain extent, Paul is saying that the friendship modeled by David and Jonathan, by the the quality of that friendship, we, we should be able to have with all Christians. That's how strong our bind is in the Spirit and in Christ. And then with that foundation, friendship can provide great security and peace. The same uh, Euripides from before says, friends show their love in times of trouble, not in happiness. Also like what Oscar Wilde says, true friends stab you in the front. That could mean that they, they never stab you in the back because that's betrayal, and that's true. True friends don't betray you, they don't stab you in the back. But it could also mean that they're willing to look you in the eye and poke you with some truth lovingly when you need to hear it, don't you think? Either way, they are someone you can turn to, someone that you can trust in. In 1 Samuel chapter 20, David is turning to Jonathan because Saul is trying to kill him. He's in dire straits. He's got nowhere else to turn except for this, his close, trusted friend. And it does take significant trust because Jonathan is Saul's son. He's the crown prince and he would gain so much if he were to betray David and hand him over to his father. But Jonathan also puts his life in David's hands by his commitment of friendship. You can see his dependence, particularly in verses 14 and 15. He knows that he could die just for siding with David. In fact, as I said, Saul tries to kill him later in the chapter, throws a spear at him. He loved doing that, Saul, and just throwing spears at everybody. Tried to kill his own son with a spear. But these two are secure in their love and the commitment of their relationship. To the point that at the end of the chapter, they can part in peace, even though there's this kind of war going on around them. That there's great turmoil ahead of them. They don't actually know whether they'll be able to see each other again. (coughs) But isn't this an accurate picture? Picture of biblical peace. doesn't necessarily mean calm and quiet circumstances, no turmoil whatsoever, happy days just lying in the grass. It means an inner peace, a deep comfort, despite the storms that are going on around. And that peace is found in the trust and the security and the refuge of relationships. That's where it's found. Now, of course, the truest of these is our relationship with God, who is constantly described, uh, particularly in the Psalms, as our fortress and our refuge. His love and His covenant in Jesus, they give us security in the fiercest storms. And then again, with Him as the basis, we can build other relationships. 
that provides security and peace despite the turmoil around us. And see, it's not bad to need this from other people. Others might say, they'll say, oh, to need someone like this, like David and Jonathan, it's, it's needy, it's weak. You, know, you should be able to stand on your own two feet. You shouldn't have to depend on other people. But that's absolute garbage. Needing other people is how God made you. When you need other people, you are fulfilling your God-given purpose. As long as we don't need others more than we need Him or need others to take His place, that becomes very problematic. But when we have ultimate security and peace in God, we're able to share that with each other and provide it for each other. Excuse me. Without God, both parties need it and neither really gets it. But with God, both parties need it and share it and give it and everybody gets it. (coughs) And that giving brings us to the last point today, which is that friendships require self-sacrifice. Neediness, sorry, neediness is not a negative thing. But selfishness most definitely is. And sometimes we have to be careful to define between the two. Neediness can often become selfishness. When you take and you take and you take and you never give, you are a sucky friend. And so I want to just give some love to Jonathan for a minute. In chapter 18, the first time that they befriend each other, it says this, Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David. Along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow and his belt. His robe was probably a royal robe, signifying again his title as the crown prince and future king. And his weapons, well... It's an incredibly sacrificial move to hand over your weapons. It's basically an act of surrender and servitude. Surrendering all your rights to the one that you are handing them to. And so here's Jonathan giving up basically his claim to the throne and pledging himself as a servant to David. And so Saul in our chapter, he sort of says later on that His kingdom, Jonathan's kingdom, can never be established while his loyalty goes to David and while David remains alive. And it's true, but that's the way Jonathan wants it. And in all of this, he points so beautifully to Jesus Christ. As we see again in Philippians 2. Jonathan, instead of grasping his own status his own title, his own claim, and using it to his advantage, he makes himself nothing. Literally in the text, it says he's, he's emptying himself. He becomes a servant instead. He pretty much hands over his life to David because the first thing new kings would normally do is kill off the sons of their rivals. 
<clears throat> Jonathan lessens himself so that David can become more, can become who God has ordained him to be. Jesus empties himself so that we can be filled. Jesus gives up his status and his title and his claim as the Son of God, no less, so that we can be adopted. He trades in his throne for a cross so that we can be commissioned. He dies so that we can live. And this self-sacrifice is the strongest evidence, the strongest foundation for friendship. This costly commitment, this putting the other's needs above your own. And this is why Jesus can call us his friends, not because of who we are or what we've done, but as he says, greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life one's friends. Jesus chooses to make us his friends, to sacrifice for us. What a friend we have in Jesus. And again, that, that great sacrifice, that wonderful good news, that is the foundation of the best friendships on earth. It is not limited to marriage or to gender or to similar personalities or similar interests. It is all about the gospel. It's Philippians 2. It's a relationship that is based on the sacrifice and on the lordship of Jesus Christ. If you are wondering who you can befriend, and I know that for most of us, we're sort of wondering, who's going to be my friend? Who's going to come and, and befriend me? But let's just flip that around for a moment. If you're wondering, who can I go and befriend? Don't just think about those you share family with or you share work with or you share age or stage in life or you share a nerdiness of something or a love of sports or whatever it might be. Think about who you can share Jesus with and let that define friendship. If you're wondering how to be a good friend, perhaps to those that you are already friends with, don't just think about giving time and money and energy, although that is all important, all necessary. Think about giving the gospel. Don't just offer advice or worldly wisdom. We so often do that, don't we, as Christians? Opinions. Instead, offer the transformational love of Jesus, which changes everything. And don't just think about what you might get out of it. Think about what you can give. The commitment, the loyalty, the love, the security, the peace, and God himself, no matter what the cost. Let's pray.
Father, again, we thank you for pointing us to Jesus in this story of a friendship between two friends in the Old Testament. One, the ancestor of Jesus, one, a servant and close supporter. Lord, that in their example, we're able to see what friendship and relationship and commitment and love can do, what it looks like and how it can be such a blessing for us, your people. We thank you that it points to Jesus who ultimately fulfilled friendship by laying down his life, by sacrificing himself so that we can be filled, so that we can be saved and forgiven. And Lord, we want to pray that you'll help us to keep Jesus at the centre of our relationships, where that's possible. Help us, Lord, to do that in, in the way that we converse, the way that we connect with each other, but also to do that in the way that we seek to be like Him, as we seek to serve each other, to give rather than to take, to need in a humble way rather than a selfish way. And Lord, ultimately, to find new levels of depth and encouragement and peace and security in the relationships that you've provided for us. We thank you, Lord, that no matter what, we have you, our God, who's made a covenant out of love to never leave us or forsake us. And that in you, we're able to have security in relationships with others, even though they're broken, even though they're imperfect. And we pray that, Lord, it's your love that fills us, that we might give it to others and that we might serve others. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.